0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, I'm finally getting around to covering a giant in the history of surgery, the French barber surgeon, Ampoise Paré. Now, it's been a while since I put out an episode, but I think you'll see why, as this is a longer one. Now, despite that, we are really only scratching the surface. Considered one of the giants in the history of surgery, Paré had a huge influence on the modernizing of surgery, as we'll see in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Amboise Paré's precise birth date has not been verified, but most sources seem to agree it was in the year 1510 CE. At least the location is known. He was born in the small village of Bourg-Hersant, which is in the northwest of France, near the larger city of Laval. His father may have been a barber-surgeon or possibly a chess maker. Certainly his older brother was a barber-surgeon, which likely influenced his choice of careers. Initially sent to the Roman Catholic Church to learn Latin, the language of medicine and academia at the time, financial issues prevented Amboise from completing his education with the local chaplain. In 1523, at the tender age of 13, he was sent to be apprenticed with the surgeon Violot of Laval, who began his training by teaching him bleeding, leeching, bandaging, and performing minor operations, the bread and butter, so to speak, of barber surgeons at the time. Now, during his apprenticeship, he was also introduced to the French translations of the works of Galen and other ancient physicians. From there, Amboise made his way to Paris, where he trained at the Hotel Dieu. The dates vary based on the source, but it was around 1533 to 1536. The Hotel Dieu is France's oldest hospital, having been founded in 651 CE by St. Landry, a Parisian bishop, and was the first hospital in the city and the oldest worldwide still in operation. At the time Paré was there, it was the only public hospital in Paris, serving the poor, run by the clergy, and staffed by medical trainees. The barber-surgery school there was associated with the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Paris, and the barber-surgeon trainees had the right to be taught anatomy and surgery at the medical school. After this training, students could take the official Master Barber's Examination, which allowed them to be accepted and recognized in academic circles as a distinct professional class. Parry received the title of Master Barber-Surgeon in 1536, But because of his lack of Latin training, he couldn't sit for the surgical licensing exam to practice in Paris, and his lack of Latin knowledge would be both a benefit and hindrance to him as physicians, as opposed to barber-surgeons, would look down on him for this, yet his publications, being written in French, were more widely accessible and therefore influential, as we shall see. Paré, being blocked from practicing in Paris, entered the military service instead, beginning in 1537 and serving intermittently throughout his life. Up until 1569, he was involved in no less than 17 campaigns, and the skill and knowledge he gained would transform surgical practice. The first campaign was in Turin, Italy, where he was hired as the master barber-surgeon for the Duke of Montjean, the Colonel General of the Infantry. Now, it's important to consider the nature of warfare in 16th-century Europe to understand the types of trauma Paré would have been dealing with, which was the widespread introduction of firearms, dramatically increasing the need for surgical care. Gunpowder itself, initially called black powder, was invented in China during the 9th century CE, and the first projectile weapons using it can be traced to the 12th century CE China. From there, firearms moved to the Middle East, possibly through the Mongol hordes, and then on to Europe via trade through the Silk Road. By the time Parry was campaigning with the French army, firearms were common. The standard of care for gunshot wounds was to pour scalding oil into the wound, which was thought to destroy the gunpowder, thought to be poisonous, and to stop or at least slow the process of gangrene. Paré quickly saw this as ineffective and inhumane. But don't take my word for it, here's what Paré himself wrote. Quote, The soldiers within the castle, seeing our men come on them with great fury, did all they could to defend themselves and killed and wounded many of our soldiers with pikes, arquebuses, which is a type of gun requiring a tripod to hold up the barrel, and stones, whereby the surgeons had all their work cut out for them. Now I was at this time a freshwater soldier. I had not yet seen wounds made by gunshot at the first dressing. It is true I had read in John de Vigo, First Book, of Wounds in General, Eighth Chapter, that wounds made by firearms partake venimosity by reason of the powder. And for their cure he bids you cauterize them with oil of elders scalding hot mixed with a little treacle. And to make no mistake, before I would use the said oil, knowing this was to bring great pain to the patient, I asked first before I applied it what the other surgeons did, for their first dressing, which was to put the said oil boiling well into the wounds with tents and cetons. Wherefore I took courage to do as they did. End quote. Quick note of explanation. Giovanni de Vigo, aka John de Vigo, was an Italian surgeon who published a comprehensive work on surgery in 1514, within which he includes one of the earliest discussions of the treatment of wounds caused by firearms. It was here that the idea that victims of gunshots were poisoned by the gunpowder and that boiling oil should be applied to counteract the poison, were introduced. Anyways, during the battle, Pari's oil supply ran out, and so he resorted to dressings made with egg yolks, rose oil, and turpentine. This actually caused him great consternation, as we can see from his own description. Quote, In the night I could not sleep in quiet, fearing some default in not cauterizing, that I should find the wounded to whom I had not used said oil dead from the poison of their wounds, which made me rise very early to visit them, where beyond my expectation, I found that those to whom I had applied my digestive medicament had but little pain, and their wounds without inflammation or swelling, having rested fairly well that night. The others to whom the boiling oil was used, I found feverish, with great pain and swelling about the edges of their wounds. Then I resolved, never more, to burn thus cruelly, poor men with gunshot wounds." End quote. So essentially Parry's discovery of the ineffectualness of oil for gunshot wounds was serendipitous. But what made Paré stand out, as we shall see, was that he was willing to make observations and discard dogmatic treatments if they didn't work. Montjean appreciated this and said about Paré, quote, Thou hast a surgeon young in age, but he is old in knowledge and experience. Take good care of him, for he will do thee service and honour, end quote. Following Montjean's death in 1539, Paré returned to Paris and was now able to pay for licensure and gain acceptance into the French company of barber-surgeons. He did pass his licensing exam in 1541, but whether this was in Latin or not is unclear. regardless, he was able to establish a surgical practice in Paris, although this didn't last long as he was called back into service under the Vicomte de Rohan in France's ongoing war with Spain. He returned to Paris again and after a year published his first book, The Method of Curing Wounds, Made by Arquebuses and Other Firearms, in 1545. The book provoked a strong reaction in the medical community in Paris. As mentioned before, physicians had an air of superiority over barber-surgeons and found it a threat to their prestige and power to have barber-surgeons create popular medical texts. Now, the next major surgical innovation from Paré again came from experience on the battlefield. In 1552, the French city of Metz was under siege by the forces of Charles V, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Paré was called back into military service and actually had to be smuggled in through enemy lines with the help of a bribed Italian captain. It was during this battle that Paré began to ligate, or tie off, blood vessels during amputations with a thread-like wire, rather than the accepted method of the time, which was to cauterize with a red-hot iron to staunch the flow of blood. This also had the unfortunate side effect of damaging the flaps of skin that were needed to cover the amputation site. Paré also used the first known arterial forceps, or hemostat, which he called his bec de corbin, meaning crow's beak, because of its appearance, to grasp major arteries and veins. Pari would later describe this technique in detail in his Ten Books of Surgery. Truthfully, Pari had merely rediscovered the use of ligatures, as others before him had proposed this, but he was the one that solved the practical problems of the procedure and made it safe and usable. In fact, in defending his choice of ligatures over artery in a letter to Etienne Gourmelin, he cites the instructions of Hippocrates, Galen, Celsus, the Roman writer of De Medicina, the Arab physician Avicenna and even contemporary surgeons, who all had recommended ligatures to control bleeding. Of course, the fact that he had to defend this at all is further proof that, despite continued success, not everyone was eager to change their ways. On another note, in that same battle, Paré treated a patient that had been hit in the head with a stone cannonball and had laid unconscious for 14 days, having convulsions. Paré treffened him, meaning drilling a hole in his skull, and then embalmed the wound with a concoction of alum and honey. In his written description of the case, Pare concluded with his famous saying, "I dressed him; God healed him." In addition to his military adventures, Pare continued to build his practice and his reputation in Paris. In 1554, he was admitted as a surgeon to the Confraternity of Saint Combe, despite not knowing Latin. It was an academic organization of barbers and surgeons that was eventually subsumed by the University of Paris. Pare was made a master on December 18, 1554 and one source suggested that this medical graduation required his royal patron's intervention. He was first appointed as royal surgeon in 1551 and would go on to serve kings Henry II, Francis II, Charles IX, and Henry III, despite being a Protestant. More on that later. This association with royalty led to some of his most interesting surgical experiences. In one reported case of pediatric trauma, Parry described a 12-year-old girl who was attacked by one of the king's lions that had escaped. The lion had engulfed her head and made several wounds without breaking any bones. Here's his account, quote, Some days later I was called to see her. I found her feverish with great swelling and inflammation of the whole head, shoulder, and chest, chiefly where the lion's teeth had entered. The edges of the wound were livid and they drained serous material, virulent, acrid, and so fetid as to be almost intolerable, like carrion of greenish to black color. The girl suffered severe stabbing and grinding pain. Seeing these complications, I promptly recalled that the ancients had left in the writings that all lacerations and bites of beasts, and those made by men also, were poisoned in greater to lesser degree. So I concluded that it was necessary to let out the poison made by the teeth and claws of the lion, and to apply remedies to counteract the poisons. I made several incisions around the wounds and applied leeches to draw out the poison and deplete the inflamed parts." He reported that for at least two years following, she remained recovered from what must have been an absolutely terrifying experience. Probably his most famous encounter with the royals involved the death of King Henry II. He was celebrating the wedding by proxy of his daughter Elizabeth to King Philip II of Spain at St. Quentin, France. The famous Spanish general, the Duke of Alba, stood in for King Philip, who was in Flanders concluding a peace treaty with the Dutch. To celebrate, the royals held a three-day tournament of games. On June 30th of 1559, against the advice of his court ministers, Henry participated in a joust. The wooden lance of his younger opponent pierced the king's headgear and shattered into fragments, which penetrated his right orbit and temple. Of interest in the previous year, 1558, the physician-turned-occultist Nostradamus had forewarned the king in a famous quatrain. I will freely admit that I had to look that word up. It means a stanza or complete poem of four lines. Before I read it to you, a quick bit of background. Nostradamus was a French physician of Jewish descent who distinguished himself treating plague victims for three years starting in 1546. Later, he began to compose these quatrains, short four-line prophetic enigmatic verses, and became Queen Catherine de' Medici's court consultant on the occult. And here's the famous one he wrote, which presumably prophesied the death of King Henry II. Quote, the lion shall overcome the old, on the field of war in a single combat, or duel, he will pierce his eyes in a cage of gold. This is the first of two lappings, and he dies a cruel death, quote. The king was immediately treated by his court physicians, including the most famous surgeon in France at the time, Amboise Paré. King Philip of Spain, upon hearing the news, dispatched from Brussels one of his most famous personal physicians, Andreas Vesalius, who arrived on July 3, 1559, three days after the accident. Vesalius himself is actually the subject of the next podcast, so I'll save the details about him for that, but suffice it to say he had a huge impact on surgery himself. Anyways, Vesalius examined the king, flexed his neck, and elicited meningismus, which means irritation of the meninges, the membranes covering the brain and spinal cord, and he determined that the patient would not recover. However, the queen, determined to find a cure for her husband, was determined to help. She did this by having four criminals beheaded and broken truncheons thrust into the eyes of their corpses at the appropriate angle of penetration to help understand the nature of the injury. And while this wouldn't help her husband recover, she had his jousting opponent, the Comte de Montgomery, captain of the Scottish Guard, executed. However, Nostradamus somehow escaped the Queen's wrath, and the accurate prediction actually helped his career as a seer. Anyways, back to the King. By the fourth day after the injury, he developed a fever which would last until his death. Trephination, the drilling of a hole in the skull, was discussed but not attempted. The king's left arm and leg became paralyzed, and a long convulsion was observed on the right side of his body. His breathing became labored, and by the eleventh day, the king died. Vesalius reported the autopsy findings. Fortunately for them and for us, the queen did not blame Paré and Vesalius. Now, following the king's death, the queen became regent of France, a fact that will be important later. But let's get back to Paré's influence on the practice of medicine and surgery. Paré wrote a book entitled On Monsters and Marvels, or Book of Monsters and Prodigies, depending on the source, which was first published in French in 1575. Now, despite the title, the text was meant to categorize birth defects and congenital diseases. The monsters part was anything outside the norm, such as conjoined twins, babies with calcified tumors, and other such abnormalities. Interestingly, the marvels, or prodigies, component included descriptions of women giving birth to dogs or snakes or other such things. It was a different time. Many of the illustrations were borrowed from his contemporaries, and Parry attempted to discuss the validity of these reports and attempt to identify possible causes, using scientific language for something inarguably unscientific. The Physicians of Paris attempted to stop its publication for fear that, as it was written in French, the general public would read it, and their motives were not altruistic, concerned with frightening the layperson. Their fear was that untrained readers would attempt to treat themselves rather than seek the advice of a doctor, and so causing the doctor to miss out on his fee. Fortunately, the King of France supported Paré, with the compromise that the book also be published in Latin, which occurred in 1582. By 1634, a London apothecary named Thomas Johnson translated the Latin edition into English, further popularizing the book. For the curious listener, you can buy a modern translated version. And of course, his most famous work, which is also still available today, is a book entitled The Apologie and Treaty of Ambroise Paré," containing the voyages made into diverse places, with many of his writings upon surgery, which was published in 1585 as a response to an attack by his fellow surgeon, Etienne Gourmelin, who you may remember from earlier. Now, of note, the word apologie is French for apologia, meaning a formal written defense of one's opinion. That's a new one for me. Dupare summarizes his wartime experiences and comments on a wide range of topics. In general, not only did Dupare discuss topics of relevance to surgeons, like treating burns, shoulder dislocations, and phantom limb pain, but he also covered topics we might consider unexpected for a surgeon to discuss, such as treating smallpox and plague, and he even wrote on topics such as midwifery, a practice at the time based on tradition and superstition. He brought the field into the realm of science and even founded a school for midwives, wrote about the training of wet nurses, and wrote a book entitled De la Génération de l'Homme, meaning of the generation of man, which became a founding book of obstetrics. He also encouraged the use of the C-section. Another major area of innovation by Paré, perhaps not surprising, given his vast experience with trauma, was orthopedics. He would construct prostheses for the amputee soldiers he had treated, with the idea that they'd be functional, not just stopgap solutions. In fact, Paré had the idea to use the progress in robotics, so to speak, that occurred in this period to create prostheses that worked with the mechanical devices invented for robotic toys and clocks. For example, the legs that he designed carried a mechanical knee that could be locked when standing and bent at will. An arm prosthesis could be bent with a pulley that mimicked arm muscles, And he invented a mechanical hand that operated by multiple catches and springs, simulated joints, and the natural movements of the hand. Colleagues worked up a prototype, and in 1551, a movable prosthesis designed by Paré was worn into battle by amputees. Next, let's consider something a bit less surgical and a bit more pharmacological. In one of his most famous experiments, Paré disproved a theory that had been around for centuries. First, a quick bit of background. Bezoars are stone-like objects that form in the GI tracts of some animals, including humans. They're typically created by materials that aren't easily digested, like hair, seeds, pits, etc., and can grow quite large. Since ancient times, they were thought to be an antidote to poison. In fact, the word bezoar comes from the Persian word padzar, which literally means antidote. Anyways, a whole industry rose up for finding, selling and trading them, and even creating fakes. In an effort to disprove their utility, Paré proposed an experiment. In 1567, a cook at the royal court was caught stealing fine silver cutlery and was condemned to be hanged. Paré suggested that, to avoid this fate, the cook would agree to be poisoned on the condition that he would be given a bezoar straight afterwards. If he survived, the cook would be set free. He did not. Instead, the cook died in agony seven hours after being poisoned, thus proving that bezoirs could not cure all poisons. Okay, let's wrap things up with a few more interesting bibliographic details and then consider Parry's legacy. He first married Jehan Mazelin in 1541 and had three children. Then after her death, he married Jacqueline Rousselot, with whom he had six children. Sadly, none of his sons survived infancy. Parry was thought to be a Huguenot, which was a term for French Protestants who followed the religious teachings of John Calvin. Their persecution in predominantly Catholic France led to the French wars of religion. To avoid this persecution, Parry accepted Catholic dogma and baptized his children Catholic. However, he required his royal connections to fully protect him. Under the direction of Catherine de Medici, the wife of King Henry II, who, if you remember, died from his jousting injury, religious violence escalated. Beginning on August 23rd of 1572, in what would become known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, up to 700,000 Huguenots were killed in France. Paré only survived the slaughter because the king hid him in a closed closet. Near the end of his career, Paré had reached a zenith, something quite surprising considering his humble beginnings. In 1567, Paré was made the head of the Royal College of Surgeons. And in 1574, Henry III made him his chief surgeon, valet de chambre, and a member of the king's council, a post he held until 1587. Ambois Paré died on December 20th of 1590, thought to be in his 80th year of natural causes. Let's consider his legacy. Ambois Paré is regarded as one of the greatest surgeons who ever lived, and in the 16th century did more than anybody else to raise the previously poor reputation of surgery, quote, to one of dignity and esteem, end quote. One paper described him as, quote, one of the most luminous figures in the dark period of the late 16th century in France, end quote. In addition to being an excellent anatomist and surgical innovator, Paré took down the old traditions of surgery and medicine as being full of dogma and transmitted in Latin, a language inaccessible to most outside academic circles, and turned it into a science based on observation and innovation and written in the common tongue. In a way, you could think of him as democratizing surgery. I'll leave you with a quote by Paré on the subject of surgery. He described the great tasks the surgeon performs as, quote, to eliminate that which is superfluous, restore that which has been dislocated, separate that which has been united, join that which has been divided, and repair the defects of nature. End quote. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we will cover someone who, while well, more physician than surgeon, still had a huge impact on the history of surgery through his work in anatomy, helped move away from the teachings of Galen and into a more modern understanding of the human body through his most famous work, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, on the fabric of the human body. I'm talking, of course, about Andreas Vesalius, the physician mentioned earlier, who helped to treat the king after his devastating jousting injury. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.